This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As you just heard in Bob's News, Ontario is getting more than a quarter of a million doses of AstraZeneca next week and they will be used for second doses. This after yesterday's announcement that the province is pausing the use of AstraZeneca as a first dose. Three other provinces have done the same. In Alberta, for instance, the issue was lack of supply, though I bet that they would be getting their share of the shipment that is sending that 254,000 doses our way. Now, here, the new numbers uh, on the risk of VIT, the rare but serious blood clots, uh, were the reason for the pause. And the researchers say it's more common than originally thought. Originally, they thought it was one in a hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand. Now it is calculated at one in sixty thousand. So the big question is where does all of this changing and frankly confusing messaging leave the one million Canadians, including many in the Zoomer demographic? who received that first shot. Now, for the record, that includes me, my family, most of the people I work with. Also, for the record, I have no issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine, no regrets. But I want to hear from you because I know there are people who are now feeling that they are getting the inferior vaccine. So, numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now, I'm joined by Dr. Dirk Heyer, Ontario's Chief Coroner and Coordinator of the Provincial Outbreak. Hi, Dr. Heyer. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for letting me. And for the record, I'm an AstraZeneca receiver as well. Okay. Uh, And are you ready to take that second dose? Absolutely. So uh, let's uh, get right to the point. So there are a lot of people who now feel that the AstraZeneca is inferior and the messaging around it has been very difficult. You know, only take it if you don't want to wait. Uh, That from the National Advisory Council on Immunization. Uh, So what do you say to those people? Oh, I can totally understand and respect their frustration and their confusion. I mean, when we look at vaccines, we look at the the clinical data, which is the studies that uh, they did to get approval. Then you look at the real world evidence. And what we've seen from AstraZeneca, it is a significantly effective vaccine that reduces the chance of getting ill and most significantly getting seriously ill, hospitalized or dying. And, and we've seen the results of AstraZeneca by looking at the UK. Look at their case numbers now. Look at how successful it's been there. Now, having said that, there's been some tragic circumstances with the adverse effects. And that's part of what we do with vaccines is we monitor, we surveil, we, we check and see how things are going. And when there's particular issues, we need to raise those and we need to make decisions 
about the ongoing use of a vaccine for certain certain situations, and that's what that's what's been done. Now you mentioned the UK, so uh, the scientists here are saying, "Well, this is happening more often than we actually uh, thought at first. What about there? Are they having more cases of VIT in the UK, or have they had more?" It's my understanding that the numbers we've seen in Ontario are are on par with those that are seen international. So a number of different uh, jurisdictions have talked about, uh, again, a, a percentage and a, an increased number of it, and, uh, and, and including the UK. So yes, we're on par, unfortunately, with what we've seen in, in other jurisdictions. Okay, but uh, again... Um when we heard from NASI the last time, I mean, they really did make it sound that the Pfizer Moderna are better vaccines. Well, what I what I I can't speak for NASI, nor did I listen to everything that they said. But what I've done is <laughs> good read for their you. Documents. Yeah, what, what I've done is read their documents, and what they what they were, I think, trying to say was when you have a decision to make. You look at a risk of something, you look at the risk of the COVID, you compare that at your granular individual level and decide what's your benefit individually compared to your risk individually, and then make your decisions, knowing that there are other vaccines that may be coming forward. That's the way that I listen to them, and it becomes an individual thing, which is far more important for a complete discussion and anything that we do individually. We should be thinking about all of these things but then what I heard was it was translated out uh, more more broadly to, to applying across population, and that might have been a challenge. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Lucy because this is uh, her issue. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Hi. I, Hi. I have a, I have a, a concern. You read so much about this, and it's like a moving target. You know, first the National Post, you know, I read it that, you know, the risk could be as high as 1 in 26,000. But, you know, it's or one in 55,000. You know, then they say it's, you know, the Nazi says it's the preferred. And then they say, no, 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 we made a mistake. No, let's clarify that. Then they say Health Canada says, well, the risk, you know, you have to watch out for symptoms four to 20 days. Now it's like four to 28 days. Um, and if they had 12 cases in Canada, then three were fatal. That's 30%. And one of those 12, you know, not fatal, but the guy apparently is, you know, has a really, really debilitating stroke. Uh, Lucy, let me just stop you for a second and clarify. So you had a first dose of AstraZeneca. Did did you have any side effects? No, I actually had absolutely no side effects whatsoever. Uh-huh. And but um, but now what are you thinking about a second dose? But now I'm thinking that with all of with all of this, if there's a thirty percent chance that, you know, if I get this, th- you know, I will die or have a debilitating stroke. I'm not sure if I want it anymore. Well, and there's I'm wondering, not. I don't know where you get 30%. That's a well, that's very three, strange well, math. Three, well, three out of the 12 cases, three died. Right. Um, also, the the risk for people getting a second dose has been calculated at one in a million. Basically, if it was fine for you the first time, it's probably oh, it's like yeah. overwhelmingly. Uh, Dr. Heyer, what do you say to Lucy? Yeah, Lucy, thanks for asking those questions. And 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 we're completely. I completely understand what you're saying because the information has changed, and that's really a challenge. And and that's been a challenge through the pandemic that we continue to change and we continue to learn more and more about what happens within the pandemic. And I remember once in a media question, we'd love for you to give us 
uh, a reliable plan. Well, we try, but things change every day. And so what we've done is we've wanted people to know some of the changes, well, all of the changes that occur when we, we learn about these things with the vaccine. Having said that, it's very difficult to be as, as clear, uh, given that there are differences each time. Now, let's move to the second dose. One in a million is the, is the current evaluation from the UK where there's been tens of millions of people who have received AstraZeneca because we don't believe it's a cumulative thing. So not because you add one and two, there's more in your, your, your system's been exposed to more. We believe that it's an immune response that occurs in a small number of people related to the vaccine on the first occasion, not that it's uh, primed and happens on the second one. That's the initial, that's the thinking right now. Uh, we're continuing to try to understand that more clearly, though. But the question I have is, so far, according to what I've read, there's only been 4 million second doses uh, in the UK. It hasn't been like 20 million. They're only basing it on 4 million. Uh, you may be up to date more than I have the data, but what we know is that we have, uh, we have a number of one, one per million, and uh, 4 million is certainly, if that is the number, and again, I, I don't know, yes or no. Yeah, um, I, 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 I don't cases. think that's correct. I will check it, but that sounds very low to me. Because yeah, was, when, I, when I was looking up online, there was an article and it said there was 4 point million second doses given. What was the date on the article? Cases. It was an article. Yes, it was, it was a science article that I was reading. I know, but you did, did, what about the date? It might have been old. It's, sometimes it's very hard to see the dates on articles yeah, when you're was, checking it was, on. It was about, I was checking that last week after they had uh, all of yeah, these. But like, the it, article whatever. may not have been up to date because that sounds low to me. But, but it should be checked out on how many second doses have been given. Okay, we will, we will check that out. But I suspect that uh, you, Lucy, read uh, an article that was uh, a little bit older. Uh, Dr. Heyer, so, I mean, with these second doses, so first of all, the recommended interval for AstraZeneca is 4 to 12 weeks, 3 months. Uh, we know that here people uh, have been, uh, and a lot of people are worried about stretching the interval to four months. So does this mean this shipment that people might be able to get a second dose of AstraZeneca sooner than otherwise? Great question. And uh, I learned about the, the, distrib- the, the, the coming allocation today. And so there's a number of things that we're talking about as far as second doses go. One um, now we have supply. We didn't know about that supply until today. So that's a key factor. Knowing for sure the question that Lucy was asking and really digging into that data more carefully and thoroughly around the second doses and understanding that to inform our second dose. And there also is information that is pending, although not necessarily going to come in the, in the near future, about mixing with other vaccines potentially as a second dose. So we're waiting to see some of that. And then the scheduling. So all of those things are coming together. And you're absolutely right. The, the product monograph says four to 12 weeks. And the data with AstraZeneca shows that the closer, as you move towards 12 weeks, that's where the most significant protection is. So we want to look at all of those factors to develop a second dose plan. The three-month period of time is in June. July would be the four-month period of time for those in Ontario who have received the vaccine. And so... Uh, we're, we're, we're working actively at that right now, uh, and you've brought all of the exact questions to the table. Okay. Uh, before we let you go, I'm going to take one another a call from Anne and Aurelia, and it's related to what we've just been talking about, and it's about the second dose. Hello, Anne. Hi. 
Uh, yes, I did have the Pfizer in April. Now I'm booked to have the second one in August, which now brings me to a four-month span there. And I'm wondering, can the two be mixed? Because I think we're probably going to end up with AstraZeneca here. So can the two be mixed? Yeah, we don't know right now. Well, we know that in, in the UK, they have been doing a controlled study of uh, providing two different vaccines to people and evaluating from a safety point of view, but also from an effective point of view. We don't have that data. It's supposed to be available late May or June. But uh, given your question and my question and the multiple times I'm hearing this a day, we have yeah. asked NASI to look at it and also uh, try and get that data more soon. Okay. Uh, and my other question is, um, are we protected with just the first dose? Yes, you are. Um, okay. What we have seen is a significant vaccine effectiveness in our Ontario data with the first dose, with Pfizer being, I'm just pulling my uh, data up, Pfizer being uh, around uh, 70% uh, from infection and 91% protection from hospitalization and death. Um, and uh, so certainly there is protection. Uh, oh, that's uh, good to know. Same thing in AstraZeneca. Not quite the same height of numbers, but significant protection from good. hospitalization, severe illness and death, as well as infection. Good to know. And I want to thank you and your team. I know you must be under tremendous stress. I want to thank you for your in-depth research and working so hard with this. That's nice, Anne. Very nice. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Thank you, Anne, for your call. Uh, Dr. Heyer, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Oh, I just want to acknowledge the challenge that everybody, all of your uh, your your people who listen and, and participate, the challenges that every everyone faces on a day-to-day basis with the pandemic and, and all of the measures that come in place. And then what I'm so pleased with and continue to be pleased with is the number of people that are going to get the vaccine to provide this broader population protection that will help us all move forward together to be uh, able to return to a life that's different than we have right now. So thanks, and thanks for your interest. Well, hopefully uh, you're right and we get back to that life soon. Dr. Dirk Heyer, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. And right now, for more on this, let's bring in Dr. Peter Uni, the Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hi, Dr. Uni. Hi. So you were happy when the province paused AstraZeneca. Why? Yes, I was. You know, science is evolving, and we now understand much better what these uh, rare blood clots are all about. And the first thing which is important to understand is Well, perhaps four weeks ago, we uh, assumed that the frequency would be roughly one in 250,000 shots, first shots. Uh, We now understand this is more like one in 50,000 first shots. That's point number one that changes the picture. Point number two is the supply chain has held and we now have enough Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to uh, continue vaccination of everybody, which is great news. And point number three is that unlike a few weeks ago, uh, the pandemic is not completely out of control anymore. We still need to bring the numbers down much more, but we're on the right track. This all changes the situation, given everything also that we know that if you have this very rare events, that it's this is not a walk in the park, it's very severe, it made absolute sense to pause and now just to uh, to continue with the first shots with Pfizer and Moderna. 
What do you think of the news that we just learned that there's going to be a big shipment of AstraZeneca next week and it's going to be used for second doses? There are, as you know, a lot of people who got the first shot who are thinking they got the inferior product. Yeah, so first of all, it's important that from an effectiveness perspective, the AstraZeneca vaccine is a really solid vaccine. The problem were the glitches that were considerable regarding safety, as we have discussed before, no? So what is also important that for second doses, the, uh, the risk of developing one of these rare blood clots is most likely considerably lower. We're not sure yet where the exact estimate is, uh, will be, but it's relatively clear that we can assume that's perhaps tenfold less likely to experience something like that if you haven't had problems um, after the first shot. And remember once more, these, these uh, rare blood clots, the VITs actually happen roughly in one in 50,000. This means the risk is comparable to the risk that you experience if you drive from Toronto to Ottawa 20 times return to experience a fatal car crash. So it's it, about the same risk. Well, I, the the number for Ontario that uh, the, the, the researchers gave was actually one in 60,000, but that's there's probably not a big difference. Yeah. No, of it's that. not. It's the magnitude that we talk about. And, you know, the, one of the issues is as we go and as um, the physicians out there become more aware of the diagnosis, it's likely that it will become still a little bit more frequent. You know, the reason that initially the assumption was that we were perhaps at a frequency of one in 250,000 was that in the UK they needed to learn how to diagnose it and think of it, etc. Therefore, these numbers actually just became more and more frequent over time. That's what happened during the last four weeks or so. Uh-huh. So, uh, and uh, Dr. Heyer told us that the numbers here are the same as uh, the numbers in the UK. Yeah, so I think that we're in a better position to detect this because we're later in the process. Our physicians are more aware of it. In the UK right now, the uh, right now the estimate, the last one uh, that I got from a few days ago was roughly one in 90,000 shots. You know, this just means we, we really, we're talking in this ballpark about one in 50,000 or so. The UK initially has missed quite a lot of these diagnoses, I'm sure, about that part. Hmm. And what about the, the second doses? I mean, the is that number, in your opinion, reliable? One in a million? We don't know yet completely. I would leave uh, judgment, you know, just open. I believe it makes a lot of sense based on everything we know to assume it's considerably less frequent. But whether this one in a million holds, I'm still a bit skeptical. We'll see as we go the next, uh, you know, few weeks or so. Uh, it's... It's interesting. I mean, you know, there's been so much uh, bad communication with with this vaccine. I mean, first, it was no good for people over 65. Then it was only good for people over 65 and kind of on it went. Look, this vaccine has been riddled with challenges. This doesn't make it a bad vaccine, you know, uh, completely, not at all. But the problem is that the trials had their trouble designed wisely. Um, then we had, then we, you know, we learned about, as, as, as this went on, we learned about how effective it is in people above the age of uh, 65. 
And now we're having these challenges with this rare, albeit serious uh, blood clots that we're talking about. So it's, this is not one of, you know, it's, it's certainly not the perfect candidate compared with the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, but it's still actually a really good workhorse vaccine, you know, and what I would hope for, but this is just a hope, is that perhaps some of the formula can be changed in the future so that the, uh, the risk of these blood clots actually is decreasing. But again, I'm not a vaccinologist, not a basic researcher. Fingers crossed that things are changing. It would have been a really great vaccine, but there is this glitch now, and we have an alternative which is just safer and also more effective. Well, do you think that people should take the second dose or uh, wait and see if they can get a second dose of Pfizer if that turns out to be a good option? Let's see how this all goes. I would, again, just reserve judgment right now. I would like to see the uh, the trial that Dirk Heyer was mentioning. Uh, you know, first results will actually come out tonight or early tomorrow morning, but not about the real immunological response, but at least some first results will come out today. And uh, what will, we'll sorry, see how what, this goes. What will they relate to, those first results? First results will relate to uh, to the, uh, the the clinical reaction. You know the amount of symptoms people experience, and uh, this will be first. And then the next step will be that we see antibody levels and cellular uh, reactions. You know of immunity. But uh, today, today or tonight, it will only be about you know how many symptoms do people experience, etc., which gives us an indirect hunch towards um, how the immune system will react. So the more symptoms the better actually from an immunological perspective if this this is not always true but it's sort of correlated but it, uh, i mean in, in, is it sort of like a phase 1 safety trial no 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 what we're doing there basically what they are doing is um basically randomly allocate people so have chance decide to different sequences of uh, of vaccines and the and what will be measured what is the main readout is um, the uh, amount of antibodies and the cellular immune response after two doses of different vaccines. So this would uh, correspond to a phase two or phase three trial. Okay, let's uh, take a call. Diane in Scarborough. Hello, Diane. Um, I'm really pleased to hear the doctor explain all this. Um, my question is, uh, is it advisable to take ASA aspirin um, if you've had the AstraZeneca to hopefully ward off blood clots? Is that an option? No, not at all. You need really? to be aware of... No, 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 forget about that. Don't. Please don't. If, if there is no indication for aspirin, forget about that. That's a pipe dream. So the point is here that these are very specific blood clots that are triggered through the immune system to very specific antibodies that then activate the platelets. And uh, this happens very rarely. And if you, if you have this, basically the aspirin won't help you anyway. The problem is that if this, if this just kicks in, this is a completely different mechanism than what we're accustomed to. You know, there were all these well-meant infographics out there that started to compare these sort of blood clots with regular blood clots, like, you know, when you have a deep vein thrombosis, yeah. hasn't got to do anything with each other and should not be compounded. Oh, so it is totally different from a blood yeah. clot in the system. Yep. Exactly. It's a completely different animal. It can look the same, but typically what is the challenge then with that is 
that um, you know it is so severe it can then happen in both either the arteries or the veins it is in atypical locations and it's very severe so it's absolutely not comparable okay oh i'm glad i spoke to you thank you so much thank you libby okay diane thanks for your call let's take one more dorothy in oakville hi dorothy hi libby my question um the south africa chose not to buy the astrazeneca yeah so my question is i've read reports anywhere that it's anywhere from 10 50 60% not effective and they're not mentioning this at all could the doctor explain how effective is the astrazeneca against the south african variant Okay, I'm going to let you go while he answers that. Uh, I don't think we really have the South African variant in Canada, Dr. Uni, uh, am I right? No, we do, unfortunately, but, oh. uh, but, cert- but they're certainly right now uh, only a small proportion, which is very helpful, and we see- should keep it that way. So we have cer- certain um, variants that were originally detected in South Africa, in Brazil, and maybe or probably also the ones uh, in India that partially evade the vaccines. That's a real concern. The mRNA vaccines are still about 60 to 70 percent effective as compared, you know, to 90 or 95 percent against the variants from the UK or uh, what uh, what went on regularly. But um, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine is indeed only relatively little effective against the, uh, the, uh, South, the variants originally detected in South Africa and probably in Brazil. So that's one of the caveats with that. Therefore, one of the reasons that we, not the only one, that we really would like to keep the um, uh, proportion of these variants as low as we can and uh, just move on. The B117 is more transmissible, but vaccines are fully effective. Okay, uh, Dr. Uni, uh, so what would you like to leave us with on this? Um, I think it is the absolutely right thing what happened here in the province. The system is working. Sometimes the messaging was not optimal, but we really should be confident. You know, we met with, uh, with Dr. Williams last Friday on Tuesday, the province already decided it is all on track right now regarding safety. And uh, we should be very pleased that we have enough, you know, mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and from Moderna, thanks to the Fed. So when we look just into, the, into what's happening right now, we're on a good track and we should be optimistic. Okay, well, that's a good note to end on. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. So we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we will discuss another another aspect of all of this. And, and that's uh, how is it transmitted? Uh, there are those who say that it should be more recognized as aerosol transmission, and that would help protect people. Uh, it's a little bit in the weeds, but we'll try to make it as clear as possible when we come back, the numbers to call if you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. We are back. It has been months since we first heard about rapid COVID-19 tests. Then we learned that the federal government acquired them, but they were not being distributed. Well, now, finally, they are going to workplaces around the province and likely around the country. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce was part of making that happen. And I'm joined by Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. So I gather, Rocco, you have more than 750,000 of these kits? Well, in fact, we've now got close to uh, a million of them because they've started to uh, to go out and more and more of our chambers are joining the distribution uh, network to get these out. Big thanks to uh, the provincial government, the federal government, our national partners at the Canadian Chamber. The provincial government, in a sense, really uh, made it happen by removing the final obstacle that was keeping small and medium-sized businesses, at least, from really participating in this, and that is that up until recently, it was required that you have medical supervision as you're administering these tests. But as my uh, colleague Ian McLean from the Kitchener-Waterloo uh, Chamber of Commerce puts it, and that's where we first uh, piloted along with Cambridge, you know, a well-trained basset hound can take this test. It is, it is dead simple. Uh, yes, it's a nasal swab, but it's not the sort of brain tickler. You uh, you swab your own nasal nasal cavities. You put then the uh, the swab into uh, into a little bit of uh, uh, of liquid, and and within 15 minutes uh, you get a positive or negative result. And if you get a positive result, you uh, clearly don't go into uh, don't go into work that day. You arrange for a PCR test, you self-isolate, and we stop uh, the chain of transmission with asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people. So uh, when did you actually receive this, and how was the decision made to distribute it through your organization? Well, uh, it just started last week in terms of broadly, but but um, about a month and a half ago, uh, we started to pilot um, in uh, the Waterloo region with the Kitchener-Waterloo because we, the chambers had been pushing hard, as had our uh, friends at Communitech, the, um, uh, the incubator there in the Waterloo region. So they said, okay, um, you, guys, you guys try it out. Um, let's see small, medium-sized businesses. So businesses under 150 employees and how, how they do. And very quickly, in two weeks, we had over 1,500 businesses order uh, the tests, which, as you point out, the federal government bought almost 50 million of these several months ago, uh, and some have been being used by large, uh, uh, large corporations and uh, long-term health. But by removing that final obstacle, it now made it easy for uh, small, medium-sized businesses to uh, to to use them. So find out if your local chamber of commerce or board of trade is, uh, is participating in it at OCC.ca. And, um, and we've got about, um, about 40 of them already up. And there's another 60 that um, are are looking at adding this, 
this capability, and then uh, as a business, you you order two weeks supply, you commit to um, testing your employees twice a week, uh, and um, and then uh, on an anonymous basis, you tell us, okay, you had a hundred tests, uh, ninety nine were negative, one positive, anonymous basis, and then you can put in your second order. You go, you pick them up; they're free for. Uh, really, they're free. This last, yes. So, and how do you decide? I mean, uh, have you been deluged with with people who want these tests? How's it going? Huge, huge uh, uh, demand. Just to give you the, the day that uh, last week that we had the um, uh, the press release out. Um, literally, even before the offices opened at the. Um, Kingston Chamber of Commerce, we had over 100 orders. Uh, Milton has had to reorder already because what it anticipated as the demand uh, was far under what it's, uh, what it's receiving. And, and similarly, similar reaction across the province, because think about it, Libby, you know, your show is called Fight Back. And this is about fighting back against COVID, about having, rather than just being victims, here's a very positive thing beyond physical distancing and masking and barriers where we can take an additional step to reduce the risk. We know that the risk is never zero until we have mass vaccination and herd immunity, but uh, it gives us that additional step forward to keep as much of the economy open as possible and to open more of the economy as safely as possible. Now, is it first come, first serve, or do you pick and choose? Do you might look at one? First come, first come, first serve. You don't have to be a chamber member. You're a company under 150 um, that's uh, that's open and doing business. So it's largely essential services right now. But as uh, we hope these uh, stay at home uh, start to, uh, to relax, Sooner rather than later, um, it gives it gives businesses that additional comfort to give their employees and their customers. Think about this. Think about this in restaurants. Think about this in daycare. Think about this um, at the barber shop. You know, if you knew the, the the barber was being tested on a regular uh, basis, and and all of this is towards moving our lives back to some normal normalcy, allowing businesses to, to earn a living, because the last thing a business wants is to live off government largesse. They, they, they got into business because they're proud of their good, their service, and, uh, and they want to make money the old-fashioned way, con- convincing customers that theirs is the best place to get that good or service. And, and when do you think you'll start having some decent numbers? Um, we're seeing it already. I mean, as I said, just in, in KW alone, we ended up in, in two weeks going through over a hundred thousand of the, of the, uh, of the tests. So and how many I, positive results? Um, enough, I can't share the exact number, but enough that, uh, it then, uh, convinced the government to go wide on this. And Alberta has now followed, uh, Ontario's lead in terms of removing that requirement of medical supervision. So I'm expecting Alberta chambers to start joining in the program as well. Uh, There are also in Ontario uh, to start some 40 shoppers drug mart outlets 
check their website uh, where small SMEs can also uh, order and, and go pick up for free uh, these rapid tests. Are you planning on sharing the numbers? I mean, when there are outbreaks, that's shared. Are you planning? Oh, no, no. The, the numbers are the numbers are all shared with uh, with the Ministry of Health and with um, and with the uh, the the individuals, obviously. Um, but uh, we share those numbers into the Ministry of Health on an anonymous um, on an anonymous basis. Right. So, uh, I mean, you're talking about reopening and and people would be confident, but if I were to look at this as a reason to, I don't know, have one of those services, it it wouldn't really do me any good unless I knew, okay, they were open about, well, we tested and there was nobody or there was one person or whatever it might be. Each of the businesses then has uh, has has that ability to do it. Uh, directly to their customers, we we certainly don't require them um, uh, to uh, to keep the uh, the numbers confidential. We're we're simply out of respect getting people involved in this program because what what we what we didn't want is we're we're not out to uh, start a program just to shut people down. This is about about helping them to manage and to reduce the risk as much as possible. And uh, again, I mean, our lockdown is probably, uh, all indications are that it is going to be extended until June the 2nd. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, as you can imagine, and you know, uh, Libby, because we've been on before and with several other uh, small businesses, this is, it's, it's always devastating. Nothing about this, this crisis is is fair or good news. Um, it, you know, every day uh, we're losing more businesses. We've lost in the province of Ontario tens of thousands of businesses to bankruptcy uh, already in this crisis. There are thousands upon thousands more that are literally hanging on by their fingernails. Uh, one of the things we most definitely want to see, given that uh, these the lockdown orders, the original. Uh, this this latest um, uh, stay-at-home order came actually after uh, the provincial budget, uh, and yet no additional financial measures have been announced with respect to um, the small business grants, for instance, which, good on the provincial government, they, they made them grants and not more debt because, uh, you know, small, medium-sized businesses simply can't add any more debt, uh, but but the qualifications need to be expanded. There are a lot of businesses um, that are still not covered by it. Uh, way too slow in getting the money out uh, to those who do uh, do qualify. And quite frankly, if if they're going to announce the extension of the stay at home, which seems likely, in in companionship with that, they should also be announcing announcing a. Uh, an extension and a, and a tripling down on those, on those grants. We also want to hear from the federal government who in their budget started saying, well, we're going to start to taper off the, um, uh, the rent subsidy and the wage subsidy because, you know, lots of vaccination happening in cases going down. Well, look, th- this is not an on off switch. The, the economy coming back is going to be a dimmer switch 
And those supports need to follow along because those businesses are not suddenly going to go back to 100% revenues. So those supports are still going to be needed if we want to avoid the major scarring of even more bankruptcies happening on our main streets and off our main streets throughout the country. Okay. Uh, Rocco Rossi, thank you so much for being with us and uh, uh, congratulations on uh, helping to get those rapid testing kits out. Well, stay positive, test rapidly negative, and get vaccinated just as soon as you can. Okay. Thank you for that. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The Ontario Nurses Association is in court today applying for a judicial review of alleged inaction by the Chief Medical Officer of Health, David Williams, when it comes to recognition of aerosol transmission of COVID-19. Now, the ONA says that Williams' failure to explicitly recognize aerosol and asymptomatic transmission is endangering nurses. Now, some doctors also believe this is necessary to prevent more community spread. Uh, I think we need to drill down on that in a little more layman's terms. So let's go to Dr. Brooks Fallis, who is a critical care physician and the former director of critical care at the William Osler Health System. Hi, Dr. Fallis. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me on. Well, uh, you wrote an editorial in the Globe and Mail about this. So uh, in in layperson's terms, please explain. Sure. So... The, the previous concept was that when people sneeze and cough, they create these sort of large droplets that are mostly infectious within two meters of the person and fall quickly to the ground. So that's how we were designing our protection. So it was masks, distancing, and hand washing. But in reality, it turns out that the virus is primarily transmitted by smaller particles that actually can float and remain in the air and as a result, can travel much farther. It's still highest risk close to the infected person because that's the source of the infection. But effectively, we need to change the way we look at this and say the way you get COVID is by breathing shared air of an infected person and infectious air accumulates in an indoor environment, particularly poorly ventilated environments. Uh, So... What is the remedy for this? I mean, we know that, say, schools, they've tried to improve ventilation in schools and in other places, but uh, I would imagine this applies mostly to workplaces for essential workers. Yes, that's where I think the biggest difference can be made is in workplaces for essential workers, but but schools would be important as well. Because we can see that when we close schools and restrict people to only interacting indoors, Um, within the people who live in their home, that those indoor environments for your average person is actually quite minimized to just your own home, Uh, with the exception of workplaces where people still need to be indoors. But our current guidance would say that, uh, you know, those a basic surgical mask is all that you need. And when you're taking a break, for instance, to have your lunch, 
as long as you're two meters distance from other people in the room, you're okay to take off your mask. So that's problematic because that is ineffective against an airborne transmitted virus. So what we need to do is change our focus to, first of all, higher quality masks. So a fitted respirator type mask. And all respirator, respirator sounds kind of like a a heavy-duty word for, you know, some of the uh, larger masks. But really all it means is a mask that has a seal. So when you breathe, you pull through the mask rather than around the mask for the air that's entering your lungs. So it gets filtered. So if everybody was wearing those at all times indoors, we would dramatically reduce the spread that's occurring in workplaces. But in order to do that, we would also need to provide people with a place to take their breaks and eat their lunches, either outdoors or in a very well large, uh, very well ventilated large room where people can be very distant from each other, and there's good ventilation turning over the air. Now, the Ontario Nurses Association is in court on this today, and their bottom line is they want to make sure that all nurses have N95 masks. But um, uh, you know, do the numbers of of uh, transmission in hospitals currently? lead you to believe that there is a big problem with this? So there has been significant hospital-based transmission. Um, Now, some people would say that because it hasn't been explosive growth in hospitals, that means that it's not a problem in hospitals. But I would disagree with that for a few reasons. First of all, hospitals are very highly, uh, very well-ventilated spaces. So most hospitals, at least more modern hospitals, already sort of turn over the air quite well. Secondly, in hospital, people are wearing pretty high-quality personal protective equipment. Uh, Even if it's not an N95 mask, they are wearing a pretty good-quality surgical mask, which provides some benefit, but not as good as an N95 mask. And lastly, the the pattern of illness in COVID patients is that the time when you're most infectious is actually from about 24 hours before you even have a symptom to about five days uh, after symptom onset. But the time when you end up in the hospital is about a week into your symptoms or even as late as two weeks into symptoms. So the people being admitted to hospital may actually be less infectious. That's not to say that we shouldn't be uh, providing N95 masks to all our frontline healthcare workers. We should because there are still hospital-based transmissions and some of them are certainly aerosol and we should be offering people maximal protection. But in fact, the hospital is not the environment to evaluate whether or not your PPE is appropriate. The place to evaluate that is actually in the community because this is a community virus spreading before people even know they're sick, which is a very important factor in how we approach trying to reduce transmission. So what would your recommendation be uh, outside of workplaces in the community because we know that in places like Peel, people are catching it at work, taking it home. What what can people there do to minimize their risk? And, you know, frankly, people are finding it hard to follow the rules as they are now, let alone more stringent rules. Yeah, I actually think that if we're clear about the way it's transmitted, saying things like you get it through breathing shared air and infectious air accumulates indoors, that's actually quite an easy message for people to wrap their head around, uh, more so than maybe distancing plus masking and then this kind of either-or situation. So we're emphasizing the indoor problem and we're emphasizing breathing shared air. When you know that, you automatically tend towards trying to distance yourself because you know that shared air is going to be more present closer to another person. 
Um, and then we need to emphasize the high quality masks. Now, to me, I also think that workplaces really should become their own champions of safety here. And, you know, while there's there should be new guidelines that the province provides to tell workplaces what they need to do, uh, you know, it's if a workplace is aware of airborne transmission, you would think they want would want to do everything possible to protect their workers with provision of high quality masks and providing a space to take a break with your mask off and emphasizing that the mask must be worn at all times in an indoor environment. Given that you're really focused on the indoor environment, do you have an opinion on the current restrictions on outdoor activities? Yeah, I actually think that because because of the recognition of airborne transmission and what we know about uh, outside, that's actually very, very helpful for allowing us to get stricter on indoor rules, but actually relax some of the outdoor rules because we know outdoors is much, much safer. So it still is important to recognize that if there's a lot of people in close proximity outdoors, transmission will still occur. However, there's lots of space in the outdoors and lots of natural ventilation. So we should be allowing people to, you know, be in parks, um, having picnics and, you know, be in the playgrounds and playing tennis and things like this to get exercise. I do think all of those things should be brought back because as long as you have the capacity for a little bit of distancing, the outdoors is remarkably safe. Is it a little bit late in the whole saga to start bringing in some of these things you're suggesting? I don't think so, because anything we can do to reduce transmission and keep transmission down is important. The pandemic isn't just going to suddenly end, although there are, you know, there are some very promising signs of cases coming down um, and lots of people getting vaccinated. But we need to keep in mind that this is in the face of very strict public health rules. So as we open things up in the future, there still are going to be cases. There still you know, will be workplace outbreaks. So I think anything we can do to make things safer will help to keep cases down and help, you know, help free up healthcare resources to get back to doing the surgeries that we need to do that we're behind on uh, and, you know, get back to diagnosing people with cancer. So we, you know, they're not too far advanced. So really anything we can do to bring down case counts and keep case counts down is worthwhile. And this is really a major feature that we're approaching the transmission pathway Uh, you know, in the wrong way. And it's particularly problematic for workplaces and likely for schools as well. Anything you'd like to leave us with? Um, I I think, you know, there is there is some hope right now. And I think everybody everybody should should feel that. But we do need to stay the course that we're on right now. And I think as the science evolves, as we learn new things, we need to apply that science to our rules and our plans. And right now, the science is telling us that our workplaces uh, remain unsafe, and there's room to improve ventilation and improve masking. But that outdoors is extremely safe. And as long as we respect distancing, we can do a lot of things safely outdoors. And that's where we should move. And with, with those things in mind, you know, we can head towards an excellent summer and get case counts really, really low. Let us hope so. Dr. Brooks Fallis, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some workplaces with Rocco Rossi, the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And uh, they finally have these rapid testing kits coming. And hopefully that's going to reduce some of that workplace spread. And we'll talk about that and other issues facing business when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.